there. Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Sarah Gordon of the NWSL's Chicago Red Stars, who goes into detail on the NWSL Challenge Cup and the emotional Black Lives Matter discussions that have been taking place inside her team. We've had some great interview guests lately, including Jurgen Klopp, Andres Kantor, and Lisa Baird, plus many others. So check those interviews out. It would be absolutely huge for this podcast growth if you could subscribe, recommend us to your friends, and take just a little bit of time to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. We'll have Sarah Gordon on soon here, but let's take a few minutes and talk soccer news with my friend Chris Whittingham, who's our show producer and a co-host of the Chelsea Mic'd Up pod, which you should definitely check out. Chris, how are you? Doing great, Grant. How are you? I'm doing okay. Lots going on. I'm sure you've been talking a lot uh, for the Chelsea Mic'd Up pod on Chelsea's 3-2 loss to West Ham United. Kind of a weird game. I didn't expect West Ham United to win this game, uh, especially based on how things went in the first half. And here we are. It's also been a couple of broader themes. First off, we've experienced this on Chelsea Mic'd Up is the emotional uh, sort of joy that has come from Chelsea's restart, particularly from an American point of view with how well Christian Pulisic has played and how well Chelsea have played beating Manchester City and then progressing the FA Cup after a poor first half. But I actually thought that West Ham and the, th- the theme with Chelsea's season is that almost no matter who they play against, they're always liable to concede. I dare use the adjective they're a little arsenally. They're they're they are never more likely to concede than when they are dominating a game. And for Chelsea fans who kind of first came up in this modern era of success in the tradition of Jose Mourinho, remember they had a league campaign where they conceded something like. 12 goals an entire season. So this is a, a club that's kind of almost taken pride in how well they defend. And this season, it's already been 44 goals conceded, 12 from set pieces, including another today. There's just that frailty and vulnerability there that particularly, I mean, West Ham, as much as they have struggled, they do have attacking players in that side that can cause problems. Mikhail Antonio today, I thought was excellent in the game yeah. against Chelsea. Andre Yarmolenko coming off. We know from his time at Dortmund, he carries a threat. Fornals and Lanzini at varying points and like can give you something. Unfortunately, West Ham are a team that's like a one out of every six, where one out of every six games, it looks really good, but the rest of the time, it's a reason why they're in a relegation fight. But I think Chelsea are just revealing themselves to be too vulnerable defensively at the moment. And it's not even just one person that deserves the blame. It's like several defenders. That's Pili Cueta today. Capo wasn't very good. Just not good enough, especially on corner kick defending. I think Ted Knutson, my friend Statsbomb, posted that Chelsea's expected goal defending on corner kicks is worse than anybody else's attacking expected goals on corner kicks. They're that bad on corners, and that comes down to a lot of things, but it also comes down to coaching. It does. It does, and I think you saw... Frank Lampard today at times get outclassed by David Moyes in this respect. And look, old school English managers get made fun of a lot. But one of the things that they always do is organize teams on set pieces. And I think you saw David Moyes today have a plan for Kepa is not a big goalkeeper. He doesn't take command of his penalty area. Let's put big bodies around him. And in general, West Ham are a big team. You saw Thomas Suchek score twice, really, from, from a corner situation. One of them was disallowed for VAR. Was that a correct VAR for you? Because this is a subject of controversy. In the end, for me, it was. But it was just yeah. comical how long it took and sort of yeah. just all the, the varying things <laughs> involved. Yeah, but either way, they were able to crowd the area around Kepa. And as you said, the best corner in the world right now 
is not a corner for any one team. It's a corner against Chelsea. And, and that is not some, not a reputation that you want to have. And I think Frank Lampard has gotten a lot of credit in this season for how he's handled the transfer ban, for handling the development of six or seven young players that have come through the academy, which for a big club like Chelsea is very rare. So he deserves, deserves a lot of credit for this season. But one of the things that Jonathan Wilson, among others, have pointed out a lot is Frank Lampard, when he was playing, was not always the most defensively aware midfielder. And so could he be able to coach aside to defend set pieces to defend solidly and so far that answer is not yet it's a bit unfair to say that he can't because it's his second year in management but I think a lot to work on with a fairly experienced defense and Tony Rudiger is experienced and Kepa and Aspiliqueta and Marcos Alonso these are players that have had significant careers and Golo Kante is at the base of this midfield Chelsea fans have been crying out for that and still their inability to defend has harmed them another good game for Christian Pulisic I thought uh, drew the penalty uh, with a really nice move when they went up one nothing at that point in the broadcast, they said that I think West Ham had lost all 15 of the last 15 games in which they'd gone down one nil, which of course uh, <laughs> didn't end up happening in this game. <laughs> yeah. um, but with Pulisic right now, he just seems to be on a run of consistency and confidence and for the most part, health. He's able to start these games. He did pick up a minor knock, as they call it, uh, against Leicester on Saturday, and there was a thought that maybe he wouldn't be able to play in this game against West Ham. Now, they do have a very tight fixture list. It goes Wednesday, Saturday, Tuesday. So it's basically three games in six days. I don't know if he's going to be able to start all of them, nor if you're an American would you even really want to see him start all of them because there's real risk of injury at that point. But to me, it is that confidence that you mentioned that is so worth noting. And also, one of the things that... I've always doubted a little bit when it comes to Christian Pulisic is his ability to retain the ball under pressure and have that variety of moves using his pace to keep possession under duress. And that's the thing that I'm seeing him most confident with in these recent few games where he's played so well is drifting through defenders, causing problems in terms of receiving, stop starting. We saw it. Not only did he win the penalty for the first goal, but he won the free kick by absolutely blowing past two or three players, including Declan Rice, who eventually fouled them that led to that sensational free kick from Willianne, it's that variety of skill moves, not just to, not only to create goals, but to create opportunities and keep possession for Chelsea. That is not something that I saw closely observing Christian in the first half of this season. Yeah, definitely the case. And and look, Chelsea's going to need him and other guys too d- during this stretch run. We've got kind of a four car pileup right now with. Leicester City, Chelsea, Man United, and Wolves extremely close to each other for these Champions League spots, and Tottenham as well with a chance to get into that group. And as a neutral here, I kind of like the idea that there's going to be some real drama down the stretch, I think. Yeah, I think a lot of fans have been hoping for a relegation scrap. Unfortunately, it is well and truly a scrap because of how bad all those teams have been. But a Champions League race as well, and I think we're going to really see it because Manchester United look exceptionally strong right now. That Bruno Fernandes signing has turned out to be a stroke of genius. I actually think as much as Manchester United, from a hierarchy standpoint, get criticized, under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, they have been exceptional when it comes to making signings. I thought I think Harry Maguire, you know, save for that mistake against Tottenham, has been pretty good. Aaron Juan Basaka has been, you know, a regular first choice right back who you'd want to have in a top side. Daniel James is a low money signing under the radar, is someone who I think is a squad player at that level. And Bruno Fernandes was a great signing, has totally changed their dynamic. And I think going forward, Chelsea fans are feeling Man United breathing down their neck. And then Wolves are flying under the radar here because they've beaten a bunch of lower end of the table sides. But 
they're right in it as well. So that race with Leicester also involved because of how poorly they've played, losing again today to Everton, three points separating four clubs for two official Champions League spots, could be three depending on the Man City European band. So I really think this is a fascinating race heading down the stretch here of the Premier League. No, definitely. And I also almost feel like right now, this may sound crazy, Paul Popka feels like a new signing. He does. He absolutely does. And I think Bruno Fernandes allows that to happen. You have to remember at Juventus, Paul Pogba was in a very specific situation that allowed that allowed him to succeed, and I do think that without a player like Fernandez to really take on that role, no one else could really say to Paul Pogba, give me the ball and I'm going to create, nor without a holding player like McTominay or Matic, could someone really say to him, no, I got the defensive thing. So I think Paul Pogba, when he tries to do everything, is probably not what you want out of him. You want to kind of limit his responsibilities so he can excel. His distribution has been great. I think allowing Fernandez to not only have the ability to play in front of him, but almost the command of the position be like, no, Paul, I got this. And when I don't think anyone that United has had since Paul Pogba has been there can really authoritatively say that to him has been a revelation. I think the setup is perfectly tailor-made for Paul Pogba to succeed right now. All I know is I'm enjoying watching Man United play for the first time in a long time. I'm looking forward to the games. Uh, Mason Greenwood was really good the last couple of games as well. So just a very intriguing situation there. If you had to pick right now, which teams would you see in third and fourth? Right now, I'd make it's hard to not overreact after this Chelsea performance. <laughs> I still think Chelsea are going to finish in third. Yes, today was a down performance, and they have that in them. But the thing is, is that so does everyone else, right? Like, we think of things as, as a snapshot of the moment. I still think on the season, Chelsea have been a better side. Leicester, great first half of the season, but since they've fallen off a cliff, this didn't just start after the restart. After January, really, they have not been the same in the Premier League. I still think as well as Manchester United have looked at times, there is always a down performance waiting around the corner for them. It's not like they're a beacon of consistency, even though they've been strong coming out of the break. And then Wolves... Wolves are really the, the wild card for me because I, I just don't know what to make of them. They've gotten these results against, you know, the bottom dwellers. They at times struggled to balance Europe, but now that's not really a problem for them. So I, I don't know. But I would say Chelsea to finish third and Man United to finish in fourth. I think Leicester fall out of the top four and maybe even into sixth, given their current run of form. I think Wolves are going to have a lot to say for this race. Yeah, I'm with you. Chelsea third, Man United fourth. And I guess we'll just have to wait and see what the ruling ends up being on Man City on whether that fifth place spot is going actually matter for Champions League in the end. A couple more things I wanted to talk about. Uh, Weston McKinney and Anthony Robinson, two players for the U.S. men's national team, whose clubs are in kind of crazy situations. McKinney obviously is at Schalke, but they announced on Wednesday that they are going to completely change their economic model over the next couple years to try and basically save the club's finances they are not going to aspire to be in Europe. It sounds like a fire sale to me, potentially. And their best asset, in my mind, on the market is Weston McKinney. So it certainly seems like Weston McKinney is likely to move somewhere from Schalke. And I think you see very often, I, I imagine this can be the source of frustration at times when it comes to signing players from other countries, is that the minute things go wrong, the first reaction from the Americans is, well, get out of there. Like, I'm, Maybe Weston McKinney has de genuinely developed an affinity for Schalke and wants to, to play this out. But when you see, and, and Derek Ray uh, kind of translated this German news report for social media this morning, where Schalke have announced reaching Europe is no longer a goal, and uh, today is a watershed for Schalke 
soccer we can't and won't continue as before with huge cost cutting and new sporting goals part of the equation and how poorly they finished the the, the restart they took two points in the last nine games they were absolutely atrocious and then you mentioned the Anthony Robinson thing Wigan Athletic are going into administration and could be relegated out of the championship with a 12 points deduction in the championship Robinson a player who had basically secured a move a full transfer move to AC Milan is now facing the specter of playing in League One and if you're talking about administration part of that is selling off assets Anthony Robinson might be Wigan Athletics most valuable asset so maybe he's on the move next year well what a few months for Anthony Robinson to to have it out there that you're going to move to AC Milan to go there for a medical to not pass the medical and actually have your career be in doubt because they discovered some sort of heart murmur I'm just happy for him that he's back playing again because mm-hmm. he only got cleared recently and you would have to think just based on the Milan interest that He's going to go somewhere. He's obviously going to go somewhere now that Wiggins in this situation, but I think he was going to go anyway. And so then the question becomes to where, and I was so surprised that it was AC Milan. Cause we've seen him play. Anthony Robinson has gotten to be a pretty good left back at club level, but we've seen him play for the U S men's national team. He's not the finished product. He gets forward really well. Sometimes doesn't always get back, but he's got a lot of potential. And so, I'm just very curious to see what what the next step ends up being for him, but I'm happy for him that he at least health-wise is in a position where I think clubs will want him. Agreed, and I think AC Milan kind of laying down, I'm not that they've done the best transfer business in the last five years, but that was such a shock when it happened. Like, wait, from the championship? Like, you would think maybe, you know, a Premier League side, you know, one like a Brighton that's done some pretty smart business with picking off younger players, but you would think it would be within that England ecosystem, and for an Italian club to pull a player out of the championship it makes you wonder kind of what they saw in him, and, and you know, you always think of it from an Italian point of view. They're a very tactical thought in the game, and so it's maybe if we imbue Antti Robinson with the kind of tactical nouse that uh, you can develop in Italy combined with his pace and attacking abilities that you can have a really good left back and that would have been really good for the development of the player but it really is curious to see because again so basically administration is bankruptcy proceedings and the penalty for this is a 12 points deduction Wigan will then move to the bottom of the table on 38 points so you'd have to imagine they're going to sell this player and I think his next club could be really important because left back is not exactly an area of strength for the U.S. men's national team Antti Robinson is kind of the hope of the position. And so where he goes next could have a big say on the development of that area for Greg Berhalter. And if he gets good enough to where he can start for the U.S. as left back, you can have Sergio Dest play in his natural position at right back and not have to think about moving him to left back and putting Reggie Cannon at right back. Even though Cannon's a very promising player as well, who I think is going to go to Europe before too long on a decent transfer now that he's signed with FC COVID, FC Dallas. <laughs> Did I say that? I'm sorry. I shouldn't make jokes about that. Um, we should probably mention that six FC Dallas players testing positive for COVID inside the bubble in Orlando on Wednesday. They're quarantined. That's still not good news, though. No, it's not. And 
we also saw FC Dallas were the ones that were having the most fun in the quarantine as well. There was that video of uh, Zenek Andrasik, their center forward, being fake DJ on the balcony. They're having fun. And then, you know, I, I just see, you know, I saw a video today of Orlando City entering the bubble and they were kind of like jumping and having fun in the hallways, all very close to each other. So I think there is a real worry, particularly, I mean, FC Dallas's first match, I believe, is on July the 9th. That's not that far away. If these players are not testing negative twice before then, then they might have, you know, five or six players out uh, due to coronavirus. And as you said, the integrity of the bubble is the most important part of this plan working. And if players are going in and previously testing negative and then testing positive once inside, that's a huge concern about the sanctity of it all. And it's what's needed in order to keep the whole thing going. Yeah. And look, I want this to work out, this tournament with MLS, but the very top priority is safety. And so... They got to make sure that everyone's safe and and we'll just see how this plays out in the the remaining days before the tournament starts. Uh, Want to finish up a little bit as we transition into Sarah Gordon in the interview I did with her about the NWSL Challenge Cup. They've started. They're the first U.S. sports league to start up again. And, you know, so far, so good. They haven't had any positive tests. They got a big TV audience on CBS, uh, like more than triple the previous record for an NWSL game on U.S. television. The rest of the games, obviously, except for the final, are on CBS All Access, but at least they're all available. And for the most part, they've been pretty good games, too. A couple zero zeros the last couple of days here, but uh, the 3-3 with uh, Utah and Houston, uh, really exciting finish. And, you know, the the North Carolina-Portland game was really good. It just seems like things have gotten off to a pretty good start. I think that viewing figure is probably the most significant news because I think it marries the two things that are both heading in the positive end uh, and also in the negative end because you have that huge audience that goes over the air on CBS and look if it's leftovers from the whatever was airing previously on those stations doesn't matter you got 545,000 people to watch a match on a Saturday afternoon with a lot of other soccer competition by the way there was FA Cup there was La Liga going on at the same time I think Barca kicked off during that window so it's really important to have that competition and I think it's the thing that you've always mentioned which is that soccer is not mature enough as a sport to not turn down these platform opportunities. It's why, for example, MLS before the COVID situation was due to have a lot more games on ABC. I think for a developing league, being over the air is almost more important than getting more money because that exposure is really important and having viewing figures that you can then sell that sort of increases your league standing is really important. So for NWSL, no-brainer to be on CBS. Yes, the rest of your games are behind a paywall, but it's an affordable one, and it kind of allows you to serve both goals. So well well done there. And my pick out of the tournament was the performance of Rose Lavelle for Washington Spirit in that 2-1 win over Chicago Red Stars. Sorry to our upcoming guest, Sarah Gordon, but, I mean, my goodness, is she... I just... The, the class that oozes out of Rose Lavelle. We saw it at the World Cup, scored, you know, the goal that locked up the tournament, but just my favorite U.S. player in, in this side... And probably ever, just because she represents something that is so different and that trickiness, that ability with her feet is just tremendous to watch. Yeah, definitely. And I'm excited about this tournament for her. would like to see her establish something big at club level. I think she's certainly capable of it. She's shown it at the international level, but uh, that's how you become the best player in the world. And if you can win a tournament, even like this, and and raise a trophy, uh, that would be a big thing for sort of the next step in in her career. But uh, Chris Whittingham, Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Grant. Now is my interview with Sarah Gordon. 
Our guest now is Sarah Gordon, who's in her fifth year as a defender with the Chicago Red Stars, who are playing the NWSL Challenge Cup right now in Utah. Gordon broke out last year, became a mainstay starter for the NWSL finalist Red Stars, and got invited to her first U.S. Women's National Team camp at the end of the year. She's also a mom, a model, and a prominent supporter of Black Lives Matter protests against systemic racism toward Black Americans. Sarah, thanks for coming on the show. Hi, thank you for having me. <laughs> Lots to talk about uh, right now in the world, but, but with the virus still going on in America, and you're speaking to me from the tournament bubble in Utah after match day two, how are you doing health-wise out there? Um, health-wise, we are doing very well. Um, I think we've all had about, every team has had about two, two COVID tests now, gotten two negatives back. So starting to feel more safe and comfortable around each other and starting to actually, you know, enjoy, enjoy time around the other teams and my teammates. Nice. So your team had rotations for game two on Tuesday. Uh, you ended up not playing. You started the first game, obviously. Uh, you guys got a point against Portland. How has it been so far for you guys from a pure soccer perspective? Well, first off, we're really proud. We started a lot of young players today, and they did a great job um, to get a shutout, to get a point out of a, a game, a game against Portland, Chicago. That's always a tough game. So we're proud of them. Uh, Soccer-wise, it's been nice to be out here. And, you know, well, you think you're getting away from everything, but as everything has played out, it has still been an emotional time. But um, soccer-wise, we followed our game plan. We knew going into this game, he was going to start younger players. Uh, we kind of had like our whole rotation going on. So we knew what to expect. And we're just kind of following a plan right now until we do get um, closer to the quarterfinals. Compared to your team last year, I guess the biggest change, the most obvious change is Sam Kerr's not there anymore. Not right. the only change, but... How has it been different for you and your team so far this season? You know what? You would, it's been such a crazy season that I can't just say, oh, we've just been focused on ourselves and building a system to fit us because, wow, it's been absolutely insane with the things that have happened with COVID, um, with George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. So the focus hasn't all been on soccer, to be completely honest. Um, obviously, not having Sam is the biggest change for us. And so we did want to focus on changing our system, focusing on wingers, um, dangerous wingers, taking players on 1v1 versus finding Sam Kerr over the top and scoring goals. So it, it is a much different team in a great way. Um, I think we're, we could be a more complete team um, and not just focus on, on having one goal score, one you know top-notch goal score. So we are still learning each other in our system and that does take time and we obviously don't have time so we're trying to, to cram all this into a few weeks while also being you know emotionally labored in other ways yeah uh, we'll make sure to talk about that here in a second um you have a six-year-old son caden and i know the league promised childcare facilities out there and they, they would support you guys did you end up bringing him with you yes he is here with me um I will say that this is the first time I have felt as a mom completely supported and taken care of by the league. They put all the moms up in separate apartments. So it's a you know good living situation for kids. It's difficult to be in a hotel room with kids. So they've made a lot, you know, they got us caregivers. They've done a lot for us and they've completely taken care of us 
um, in that way, which has been great. So the NWSL is the first U.S. pro sports league back playing again. And there's obviously been a lot of attention on the national anthem and and peaceful protests and, and the reasons for those protests. First off, in your opinion, do you want the anthem to be played or would you prefer it not be played? In my opinion, I do want the anthem to be played. Um, I think as much as we are here to play soccer, there are more important things going on than soccer. And so, you know, the narrative of this whole tournament in a lot of ways by the media has been changed to just be about the anthem. And yes, of course, we want it to be focused on our soccer skills. But if we can get people thinking and talking and continuing to talk about this movement, that's important and necessary. I mean, can you lead me through a little bit how you've experienced this since the death of George Floyd, who was, who was murdered by police in Minneapolis? It's been emotional. It's been devastating. It's been everything. Um, I obviously am a mixed race person. My son is black. My boyfriend is black. I have black friends and family. And so that's why I've been so vocal and so outspoken about this movement from day one, because from day one, we were sitting at home crying about it and immediately talking about how can we start to change things. So it's important to me. It hits home for me. And I'm emotionally driven to, you know, find ways to change things and get people to think and talk about it and change their ways of thinking. I was wondering if you might be willing to, to read the Instagram post that you made, because I think it, it was really powerful. And uh, I think it would probably our listeners would find it more powerful to be read by you than by me. Yes, I can read it. <laughs> I kneeled. Now, when will I stand? I'll stand when the people behind bars aren't disproportionately black or Latino. When my son can go to his neighborhood school because it has the same resources as the one we apply to in the wealthy white neighborhood. When black people aren't denied bank loans or employment for having black names. When black people have more than 2.7% of the country's wealth when they make up 15% of the population. I'll stand when black mothers aren't three times more likely to die in childbirth than a white woman. When police officers are held accountable and sent to jail for murdering innocent black men and women. I'll stand when the country looks the same for my black son as it does for your white son or daughter. Until then, I kneel. Thank you for reading that. No problem. It's, it is really powerful, and I'm wondering how it came together. Honestly, we've had so many discussions within our team since the day before the first anthem and the day after the game. And I was talking to Julie Ertz and she, you know, has asked me so much about how important is it that teammates kneel? What does it mean? Et cetera. And one of the questions she asked me is, so when do we stand? When are you going to stand? And it really made me think about it. And I'm, you know, not going to stand until things start to change. How would you describe the, the conversations that have taken place inside your team, because the whole world saw Casey Short and, and, and Julie Ertz the other night, and, and your whole team, and, yeah. and the statement you guys made. How has that gone inside the team? Um, it's been difficult. It's been emotional. It's been exhausting, honestly, for some of us. Uh, definitely for Casey and I, it's been exhausting to continue to talk about it, to have to, you know, feel like we're talking in circles and answering the same things. Um, it was ultimately a, a difficult decision for a lot of my teammates because some of them play for the national team. Some of them have family in the military and, 
the flag in this country is important to them. And I get that. And I see that. And for those teammates, you know, to have to make such a tough decision and ultimately, you know, be next to me, a lot of them be next to me was, you know, it was the moment where you get chills because it's like, thank you for, for supporting me. And so it was a really special moment. And for those who, who didn't choose to kneel, I, I will never say a bad word about them. You know, I've had tough conversations with them too. And, and, you know, there's been a lot of tears involved, but I, I will never uh, speak ill about any of my teammates. Obviously, I know it's been a tough decision for a lot of people. Here's where I, I think it's sort of tough from, from my perspective, because here I am asking a black American woman to come on my show. I'm a white guy and sort of fill people in on some things. And part of me is very much like, this is something that isn't on you. And so I, I'm wondering how to balance that, not just in this conversation, but overall, if that makes sense. Because, yeah. you know, like I've had conversations, white guy to white guy, you know, with other white folks, family members, uh, which have been productive, I think, and sometimes uncomfortable friends. Um, but how do you approach when somebody asks you to come on a show and, and talk about this stuff? I think, you know, not just media requests, but also engaging in conversations about this to with you know other white people it's it is a lot and that's why i do say it is exhausting um and we would like these conversations to be taking place you know without always having to have a black person in the room but i also do feel i have been so privileged my entire life um that i can without a doubt connect with people because i do have the connection of being mixed of having black you know, my son being black, et cetera, I can, I can really show them how I feel. And I do feel like I, I owe that to, you know, to, to the world because I have been privileged and I do want to stand for, you know, part of me that is being black, but also, you know, be able to, to change people's minds and help people learn about this. So about a month ago, you posted on Twitter that you'd be interested in connecting with young black women soccer players to, to even help train them what kind of a response have you gotten so i think well first of all it's important to note that like the whole kneeling and all of our posts have created controversy like not everyone is behind it and not everybody is against it and so a lot of people will comment saying things like well what are you really doing by kneeling so i've been you know wanting to say we are doing so much more than just kneeling we the conversations have expanded far past that um obviously i've had people reach out to me saying you know they have daughters who would love to be trained they would like to be trained or mentored um and i've had an overwhelming amount of support just from people who, who are saying they like to lend a hand send money send cleats whatever so i think that has been amazing and i would like to take it a step further and be able to um create a nonprofit or a clinic where I can really get something where, you know, it's happening and we're making these connections in the community and we're really getting black girls to make connections with us and feel like this sport is their home, even if they don't necessarily see a ton of black people playing soccer or the, there still is a gap between the black community and soccer. Yeah. I mean, like soccer in America is a, is a pretty white sport. Um, do you think we'll see real change and, and as part of that, how, how do we get more black Americans, including black women playing soccer? How do we get more black women doing what I do, doing soccer journalism? Because I can count on less than one hand, 
the number of black women in this country who are professional soccer journalists. Yeah, for sure. And that's why I say there's just a huge gap between the black community and the sport of soccer, because that's just the truth of it. Um, It has become, and well, it has always been a white suburban sport because of that's where the resources are. That's where the time and the commitment it takes from parents. Um, So that is why I said I wanted to train girls because I just feel like being able to make that connection and them, you know, if Casey and I are training, training black girls that play soccer and they're seeing people that look like them or seeing people that truly want to care about them and making connections, they will be in the sport for longer, most likely. And they will, you know, there are so many, like I said, there are so many college scholarships to be had in this sport and um, the potential is there, but yeah, the the hardest question is how. And so I think we're going to do everything we can in our community. Chicago is a great place to start to bring the sport to um, different aspects of the black community. And that's really, you know, where we're going to start. Good luck with it. Um, you know, you have an interesting personal soccer story. You're from Chicago area, didn't ever get called up to youth national teams, played at DePaul, had a son in college, got drafted in the third round by Chicago. You weren't a full-time starter your first three years, and then you became a full-time starter last year, got your first national team call up. What happened last year to sort of get to the next level? I feel like my biggest problem with my game was I would get stuck in my head and overthink. And I think I've probably told um, people this before, but the biggest change for me was my mental game um, through like meditating and yoga and just bringing awareness to the moment I'm in, which is a lot on the soccer field to bring current awareness. The moment you're in definitely changed it for me. I, I mean, like I've always been fast. I, that's something that's always been there for me, but it's, it's just like I would get so anxious on the field and last year I finally just calmed down and and was present in the moment of when I was on the ball and off the ball. Nice. And you get to the national team camp. It's sort of a talent identification camp under Vlako Andonovsky. What was your experience like there? Um, yeah, that was the first time I've ever been to a camp. I've never even been to a youth camp growing up, so I had no idea what to expect. Um, it was great to be around that caliber of players and it was also it was a difficult camp because it was a lot of young players so there wasn't one leader to really take the reins and and show the way so that did make it difficult in some ways but I mean it was a great experience and it definitely definitely began to show me what I need to bring to the table every day if I want to continuously be called into those camps. Um, I'm just curious when you became a pro with Chicago Red Stars. I think people out there sort of just assume that that means life becomes easy. You get paid to play and, and, and all this stuff. And the, the fact of it is if you're a soccer player in America, male or female, but you know, I guess probably especially female in most <laughs> cases, it's challenging financially. What was that like for you? Oh my gosh. It was horrible. Okay. So I was making $800 a month my rookie year. And I remember I couldn't even pay my son's daycare bill, but it was one of those things where I didn't want to call up my coach or the owner of our club and ask for more because it's like, you're just happy to be here. You know, you're just happy to have a contract. So those were some of the most stressful years of my life. And it wasn't financially possible to make ends meet. It really wasn't. So it was great to have my family who, who, you know, grew, I grew up in Elk Grove. So they were right there. I could live with them. 
Um, but it was, it was difficult. It was nothing near easy or comfortable for me. And I know one aspect of that obviously is having a child, but, um, yeah, those were some very stressful times. That's incredible. Um, wow. And in terms of like your modeling career, like when did that start? What, what does that involve? Um, yeah, so I've been signed to an agency for the last, I want to say like two years now. And that's really, I think a lot of things, two years ago was when I finally, I had to find something else. Financially, soccer wasn't going to cut it. And so it just kind of was drawn to the camera in that way. Um, and then it, everything just kind of took off in the past two years. Um, but as for modeling, it's like you'll, the agency finds you jobs and then hopefully it works. Hopefully soccer, you know, isn't at the same time as those jobs, but it's, it's definitely taken off the financial burden off of me. Nice. Is it something that came out of soccer, do you think, or is it completely off to the side? Yeah, um, it, it definitely came out of soccer as well uh, because it, my agency is a lifestyle sports agency. So having me being able to do things with a soccer ball, obviously Nike, Adidas, all these brands have soccer shoots. So having soccer players that they can have is a great look for the agency. Nice. Uh, so obviously we talked about this. 2020 has been totally out of the ordinary as a year Crazy. in so many ways. <laughs> Um, this tournament is essentially going to be the NWSL season, everyone tells me. I guess there's still an outside chance there are games after this tournament, but the commissioner told me it was sort of unlikely. Um, what are you hoping to get out of this this crazy year, 2020? And, and honestly, how much of it has to do with soccer? <laughs> well, soccer-wise, I mean, we're hoping to come together we play Utah in our last game before the quarterfinals and we kind of collectively as a team decided like by that, you know, we haven't had preseason. So we haven't gotten the preseason jitters out or, you know, all the rust off of us. And so by the Utah game is when we really want to bunker down and get ready to go into the quarterfinals. Um, so the biggest thing for, for the team is, finding a way to come together through all of this, which is going on, which is emotional and scary and uncomfortable for a lot of people. So unity is going to be a big thing. And, and you know, just we're real humans. So we're working on that. Um, as for the rest of the year, I can't say exactly what I want out of it, but I'm hoping that we can find ways to go into our community and start to really make a difference. Well, Sarah Gordon is playing for the Chicago Red Stars in the NWSL Challenge Cup out in Utah. It's on CBS All Access. Final will be on Big CBS, where they're getting giant ratings for these games in television audiences. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. I can't tell you how much that helps. I'd like to thank Sarah Gordon, as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. I also want to thank Taylor Rockwell and Daryl Grove of the Total Soccer Show for everything they've done to get this show off the ground. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time. Thank you.